Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 283, The Kingdoms of the Foreigners. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to George, Anne, and Valerie for signing up already. Imagine that you went from being a disfavored bastard with little power to the most powerful English king that had ever existed. And you did it in the space of just a few years. That you went from being functionally orphaned and shunted off to Mercia to being so powerful that continental rulers were seeking your support and sending their children to your court just to further tie their fortunes to you. Having annexed Northumbria, obtaining the submission of Cumbria, Strathclyde, and Scotland, and having brokered marriages with major Frankish figures while also obtaining foster children from powerful monarchs in the region, that's the situation that King Athelstan was in. It was a meteoric rise. But he wasn't done. The island is bigger than just England and Scotland. There were also the Britons. The people who had remained distinct in language, culture, and practice since the retreat of Rome. These same people who the Anglo-Saxons called the Welsk, meaning the foreigners. Now the situation between Wales and the Anglo-Saxons, who are now called the English, was a complicated one. And it had been that way for quite some time. When Edward died on Farndenundee, which wasn't too far from the Welsh border, he left a situation that remained very fluid. Almost anything could happen next. And as we've learned, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms didn't exist in a bottle. Their politics influenced and were influenced by many other political events in the region. The obvious examples are the Scandinavians, the Viking conquests. But if you think back to the major events in the show, there's been another group of people who have been remarkably influential upon the shape of English history, even though they often don't get credit for it. The Welsh. And this goes way back. Pretty much as soon as you had Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, you saw Welsh influence. For example, when Edwin fell at Hatfield Chase, it wasn't just Penda who was responsible. Right alongside him was Cadwathlin, the King of Gwyneth. And if you go back and listen to old episodes, you're going to notice that this is a theme that we see outplayed again and again. And it goes both ways. We see Welsh politics influencing English politics and English politics influencing Welsh politics. And during the reign of Alfred, the question of how Wales would turn was a serious one. The sons of Rodri Mawr, Rodri the Great, actually allied with Alfred's Scandinavian rivals for quite some time. And that amounted to a real threat to Alfred's rule. An allied Welsh-Danish force was nothing short of an existential threat for the West Saxon kingdom. And it's no surprise that when Asser was writing a biography later on about Alfred, his main audience was the Welsh. He was making a case that Alfred was a fair and forward-thinking ruler, because Alfred needed the Welsh on his side. And if you've been listening closely, you might have noticed that Alfred's political domination really only got going after the Welsh leaders agreed to come under the West Saxon umbrella. And this might surprise some of you, as most of us have been exposed to pop history as told from the perspective of the English. And the English perspective often implies that Wales was basically one big sheep ranch for all of history with little to no impact on the world around it. 
But even in the Chronicle, we can see that this wasn't the case. Now, unfortunately, exactly how it was not the case is hard to know, as there are very few surviving records that give us any sort of detail about what was happening on the other side of Office Dyke. But that doesn't make the Welsh unimportant, because they absolutely were. And these same Welsh could be a significant threat to the rule of any Anglo-Saxon king. And they have been, repeatedly, all throughout history. And Athelstan would have known that very well, because he was raised right in the middle of it. You'll remember that during the likely Cold War struggle between Edward and Athelflaed, it was Wales that was playing a significant role. And this is because while Alfred secured the submission of the Welsh kings, when he died, that fealty didn't flow to the new King Edward, his son. Instead, it went to Athelflaed, Alfred's eldest daughter, and the Lady of Mercia. Now, the Welsh kings had a lot of history with Mercia, and have repeatedly been part of Mercian hegemonies in the past. So it's entirely possible that this was simply a return to form, that there was a familiarity there, and that for the Welsh, the West Saxons were just a bit too foreign and far away for them. Furthermore, the Mercians were always a little bit different. They were distinct from their West Saxon cousins. And their name, which means the border people, might provide a hint as to why. Many scholars argue that Mercia was far more British than other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And so it's possible that their method of rule and their culture was just more palatable to the Welsh kings than the Carolingian-inspired West Saxon rulers. Though, of course, this move to ally themselves with Athelflaed might also have been for specific political reasons that have simply been lost to history. But whatever the reason, the Welsh were allied with Athelflaed, and that significantly rebalanced the power on the island and the power between the two siblings, Edward and Athelflaed. And it stayed that way even after Athelflaed died. It wasn't until Edward deposed Athelflaed's daughter, Aelfwyn, that he was finally able to obtain the fealty of the kings of Wales. And getting that fealty was a significant event, which is why the Chronicle made sure to include it. So you can start to see the shadow of the influence of the Welsh kings. And then, Edward died. And he died days after putting down a rebellion in Chester that might have been supported by the Welsh. And with his death, the Welsh once again had a hand to play in how Wessex would maintain its power. And this time, it looks like they chose to assert their independence. While Athelstan maneuvered for the throne, Wales remained uninvolved. And we don't see any indications that the Welsh kings supported Athelstan's rise, nor is there any evidence that they were involved in his court during the time of his succession. They stood apart, at least for a time. But as Athelstan's rise to power attained a fever pitch, the Welsh stance began to change. Though we don't know precisely when it changed. Now, as I've highlighted in previous episodes, William of Malmesbury has been our primary lens for the story of Athelstan, and as a consequence, the story that you know right now largely comes from him. And William says that the Welsh didn't come into the West Saxon sphere of influence until after Athelstan took possession of Northumbria and obtained the submission of Cumbria and Scotland. Basically, like this was a power play that happened after he'd already steamrolled the North. However, version D of the Chronicle tells us the exact opposite story. There, the scribes tell us that Athelstan obtained the submission of King Huel Thaw first. They literally used that word, first. And only after he had the submission of King Huel Thaw, 
Then he went on to obtain the submission of King Constantine of Scotland and the King of Gwent and several others at Amont. So who do we trust? Who went first? And what can we decipher about the relative powers of the kingdoms based upon these records and the order in which they appear in the submission? Scholars have been debating these points for decades, and that debate is a little bit too much into the weeds for this show. And so for now, we're going to stick with William of Malmesbury's version of the tale. And so he tells us that after annexing Northumbria and securing his dominion over Scotland and Cumbria at the Council of Decor, Athelstan mustered his troops and marched south. Now, this was the same force that defeated King Guthrith of Dublin and caused such overwhelming fear that we're told that King Constantine quote-unquote rushed to the meeting with Athelstan so that he could submit to him. Athelstan and his army scared the bejesus out of the north, and it was this army that was headed for the Welsh border. Specifically, they were marching to Hereford, and the plan was that they were going to deal with the Welsh. Now, we aren't told which kings were present at Hereford, nor are we told the composition of their forces, or whether Athelstan was riding to war, or simply riding to settle something political, like a border dispute. But whatever the purpose of the march was, William tells us that Athelstan encountered what he called opposition. And given the words and context of this entry, it sounds like this opposition was a battle. And in the end, William tells us that the Welsh became subject to Athelstan and were obligated to fix their boundaries at the River Wye. But for some reason, that wasn't enough for Athelstan. Instead of gathering his troops up and withdrawing, he kept making demands. Strange demands. Extravagant demands. In addition to pushing back their borders and submitting to Athelstan, the Welsh would also have to pay Athelstan a tribute of 20 pounds of gold and 300 pounds of silver. And they would have to send him 25,000 oxen and another 25,000 dogs. And as a cherry on top, they also had to provide falcons for hawking, but we're not told exactly how many falcons. I assume a lot. And remember, this wasn't Athelstan's version of a Danegeld. It wasn't a one-time payment or a lump sum. This was a tribute, and it was expected to be paid annually. And I love dogs as much as the next guy, but 25,000 is just too many dogs. No amount of hoarder's paradise could keep such a thing. So I'm not sure if William added an extra zero by accident, or if this was an odd urban legend, or if Athelstan was straight up trolling the Welsh. But I stand by my statement here. 25,000 is too many dogs for anyone to demand as tribute, regardless of the circumstances. And the scale of this tribute is part of why I get the sense that the opposition that William talked about was a battle, and that it might have gotten a bit nasty, because this tribute seems spiteful. And it makes me wonder if this is all the result of Athelstan thinking that he already had the submission of the Welsh, and that the opposition that he encountered enraged him, and he was lashing out at unexpected rebellious Welsh kings. And let me explain why I think that. The thing to remember about Wales during this period is that it wasn't just one kingdom. There were many kingdoms. Chief among them at this time was King Hwyl Thaw, King Hwyl the Good. And he was the grandson of Rodri the Great and the son of King Cadith. And he reigned over a kingdom called Dehybarth, 
which consisted of David, Selsiwig, and Ceredigion. It was a massive kingdom. Essentially, he controlled about a third of Wales, and it was a rather wealthy third, which made him a major player in Welsh politics, and also the chief rival for several other Welsh kingdoms. And here's how influential this guy was. At the time of Athelstan's march into Northumbria, Huwulthaw had recently returned from his pilgrimage to Rome, and he was the first Welsh king to take such a pilgrimage. That's not just a sign of how powerful he was, but it also was something that was bolstering his influence upon Christendom. King Huwulthaw was a big deal. And as I mentioned earlier, according to version D of the Chronicle, Huwulthaw was the first of the kings to submit to Athelstan. The Chronicle then went on to add that King Owain of Gwent and Glywysing also submitted to Athelstan at Amont, along with Constantine and others. So if you're looking at a map, that's a huge chunk of Wales that had submitted to Athelstan by the time of the treaty, you know, assuming that the Chronicle's right. And that's my thought on this. What if the Chronicle is right, and that William of Malmesbury was missing a bit of the story? Because based on these two kings' submission, that meant that Athelstan had a lot of Wales under his dominion. But not all of it. There were still two kings who were independent. Namely, King Idwal of Gwyneth, who was the son of Anarod ap Rodri, and actually Hul's cousin, and King Llewellyn of Powys, who was the son of Murfin ap Rodri, and actually also Hul's cousin. That's how powerful the House of Rodri Mauer was, by the way. The only king of Wales during this period who wasn't related to Rodri was the king of Gwent. All the rest were Rodri's grandsons. But notably, Hul's cousins, Idwal and Llewellyn, weren't present at the Treaty of Amont. And I'm wondering if they were the opposition at Hereford, if it was their forces that fought with Athelstan. And they controlled Gwyneth and Powys. And Gwyneth and Powys were powerful regions in Wales. And Hereford was right up against their territory. So what if they weren't willing to follow Hul's lead? After all, we have no reason to assume that the Welsh kingdoms were all in agreement on submission. They might have been, but just like with the Heptarchy, they all had their own leadership, cultures, and incentives that were influencing their decisions. And it seems like not everybody was crazy about the English, because at least later on, Hul's cozy relationship with the English was an object of scorn for some of his countrymen. One Welsh poem of the time, the Armes Pradian, actually excoriates Hul for his pro-English attitude. The point is, the Welsh kingdoms weren't lockstep, and perhaps Gwyneth and Powys weren't as willing to cooperate with the English as much as their neighbors were. And that could explain why, despite the Decor Amont Treaty, we see a second apparently militaristic event that occurred at Hereford and resulted in surrender and a truly punishing set of tributes. But whether Athelstan confronted all of the Welsh kings at Hereford or just a portion of them, in the end, we're told that all of Wales had surrendered to him. And then William of Malmesbury tells us that Athelstan turned his attention south, to Exeter. Now, Exeter at this time was a border town. It was jointly occupied by Cornish and West Saxon people. And William tells us that the two peoples lived in the city with, quote, equal privileges, end quote. Now, he tells us this in kind of an offhand way, but it's fairly striking to read, since we're so often presented with what feels like a stark cultural and ethnic divide. But time and time again, once we get a closer view, things seem a lot more fuzzy. So, here we have this city, with culturally Cornish and culturally English people living together. 
And it was a city that had been the stage for a lot of West Saxon history. For example, the city that was occupied by Guthrum and rescued by Alfred was Exeter. And later, when the Appledore Danes were ravaging Wessex, Northumbria and East Anglia besieged Exeter, only to be saved once again by Alfred. Exeter and Wessex had a lot of history, and it was treated as a West Saxon territory for good reason. Cornwall, at least large parts of it, had been politically absorbed by Wessex by the time of Alfred. In fact, part of Alfred's will even included Cornish estates, and Exeter was part of that territory that was absorbed. So, here we have this city, which had existed in a sort of liminal space between one of the old British kingdoms and the new kingdom of the English. And within it was a mix of English and Cornish citizens, and we're told that they had equal rights. Which is pretty nice if you think about it. And then we're told that after his victory over the Welsh in Hereford, Athelstan gathered his army and set down upon Exeter like a biblical plague. We're told that his army fiercely attacked the city, forcing their defenders to retreat and established a new boundary far to the west, deep into Cornish territory at the River Tamar. So what the hell happened there? Exeter should have been his city. And there's a lot of debate about this one. This event is so unexpected that scholars are deeply confused as to how or why it happened. And some historians like TM Charles Edwards find it so unexpected that they deem it downright unlikely and argue that this wasn't something that actually happened, while others, like historian John Davies, claim that this must have been in response to a British rebellion. And I really don't know precisely what the purpose or meaning of all of this was. I mean, it certainly could have been the result of an uprising, and we're told that following Athelstan's attack, he fortified the town with a stone wall. So that sounds like he might have been trying to turn it into a military hardpoint. But there's a couple things that give me pause about this story and make me wonder exactly what was going on. The first is the fact that the Cornish and the Welsh were largely considered to be part of the same broad cultural group by the English at this point. They were all Welsk, and the Welsk that Athelstan had just dealt with pissed him off so much that he demanded that they find 25,000 dogs a year to keep him happy. And the second thing that gives me pause about what happened here is what William says about the attack. Quote, this city then, which he had cleansed by purging it of its contaminated race, end quote. And I'm going to say that again to make sure it sinks in. Quote, this city then, which he had cleansed by purging it of its contaminated race, end quote. I can't figure out why William would make this up. And if this record is true, then what we're being told about here is that Athelstan had just purged the city of all of the Cornish. These people, who William himself describes as living peacefully in Exeter as equals with the English. And with the language that's used in this, it's unclear whether Athelstan drove them out of their homes or if he outright killed all of them. But it's hard to spin this one. And if you notice, William of Malmesbury did try and spin it. I mean, William saw Athelstan as a hero of the nation, and he wanted others to remember him that way too, and so he tries to excuse these actions upon the Cornish. He refers to the Cornish as a contaminant. He's dehumanizing them, and he's doing it in the very way that we've seen in the past and we're going to see again and again in history. It seems to happen every time people want to excuse what they do to people less powerful than themselves. 
And here is where we have to separate history from myth. Because the figures that we're talking about here aren't heroes. They're people. It's true that Athelstan was an underdog foster dad, and he was charitable to the church and kind to the poor of his realm. We've heard all manner of positive things said about him, but he's also someone whose own biographer said committed a violent ethnic cleansing. It feels contradictory, and we don't know why Athelstan did what he did, or why his men followed those orders. But it's entirely possible, even likely, that they used the same mental trick that William of Malmesbury did when he wrote about it. Human beings are very clever, and they're brilliant at rationalization. That's why so often people who carry out these acts do so while preaching about defense, or sovereignty, or purity. It's how they rationalize what they're doing. And rationalization is necessary, because ultimately, at our core, we're a cooperative species, and unless something is misfiring, most people have empathy for the pain and suffering that other people are experiencing. Unless the people who are experiencing pain are somehow less than human. And that's how you end up with people talking about a group being a contaminant that needs to be cleared out. So that way, the real people can thrive. It's a hack, and it's utilized to justify all manner of horrors now and in the past. And not just by the people who do it, also by the people who watch. For every wrong, there's an army of people seeking to find a reason that it wasn't wrong. That was actually right, or at least neutral. So what we've got here is a murky incident. But even from here, we can see the shape of familiar parts of history. Things that we know, and we know really well. And there's no point in learning history if we don't learn from it. And William and his assurances that the Cornish were contaminated is just one more example of a lesson that needs to be learned every generation. People can do awful things if they allow themselves to imagine that they're actually the victim and that they're fighting to protect something. People can stand by and watch these awful things if they decide to identify more with the dominator than the dominated. We're smart creatures. We can fool ourselves pretty well. And when you start hearing phrases like contaminant and infestation, take note. History tells us what happens next. And be very careful about who you follow. Because in history, unlike myths and fiction, there are no heroes. Just people. And people are flawed. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join all our other communities, and we have links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>